The title sponsor of Hunt Talk Radio is Leupold. Leupold Optics are the trusted optics of accomplished hunters and shooters. If it has a gold ring on it, you know it was built by American hands in Beaverton, Oregon. Whether it's a new rifle scope, binocular, a spotter, rangefinder, or eyewear, go to leupold.com to learn more and look for these fine Leupold products at your high-quality retailers. Hey folks, Randy Newberg here. Welcome to Leupold's Hunt Talk Radio. As I was walking, I saw a sign there, on the sign it said no trespassing, but on the other side it didn't say nothing. Well, that sign was made for you and me. Hey folks, Randy Newberg here with another episode of Leupold's Hunt Talk Radio. Thanks so much for being here. My guest today, and my maybe he's going to become my co-host for the next four episodes, is Andrew McKean. You know Andrew, he's been on our podcast in the past. Uh, you know him from all of his work at Outdoor Life. Uh, Andrew and I, about, I don't know, a year ago, started an email chain back and forth about big changes going on. And it seems like (laughs) our timing, I don't know if you'd call it was good or bad, but since we started those email exchanges and some personal meetings last summer, so much has been happening as it relates to wildlife management and the governance of wildlife management and the direction a lot of our wildlife management is taking as a result of these rapid changes. And we're going to do four episodes. This is the one you're going to hear today. It's the first of four. This one is me and Andrew. We have two really good guests selected for number two and number three. And then he and I are going to do episode number four. And really what it gets to is the examples we see in Washington where their commission is now uh, floated around and proposed an idea to get rid of hunting or devalue hunting or de-emphasize hunting as one of their management tools for their wildlife agency. It goes to Colorado where there's huge changes in the commissioners that have been appointed by the new governor. Uh, The odds, uh, all the indicators are Colorado is going to have a Uh, lion hunting ballot initiative next year. Uh, We've just seen New Mexico uh, have issues related to termination of lion and bear hunting. Well, I wish it was a simple enough cause and effect story or, or issue that we could cover it in one episode, but we really can't. And Andrew and I both believe The future of wildlife, the future of hunting and fishing in America is going to be heavily influenced by the direction that this has started and heavily influenced by where we engage, where we get involved and what we do to stake our claim as stakeholders what our story is, what our our traditions have been, but mostly what value we provide, not just today, but going forward. And we're going to get into the weeds of topics from the North American model to governance, to social issues, to religious issues, to 
you name it, we are going to get out there on some really thin ice. And I know some of you are going to hear some of the comments we make and you're going to get pissed off and you're going to send me an email. And that's fine. I, I am doing this because I share Andrew's belief that this issue, the direction and governance of our wildlife management institutions and all the institutions that support what has brought us here, those are trying to be, I'll call it, taken over, hijacked, whatever, influenced, directed, whatever term, synonym you want to use. Those institutions and, and the governing manner of those institutions are trying to be captured by people who have a completely different view of wildlife, of wildlife management, a completely different view of our relationship with wild places and wild things. So I hope you'll hang around for this one. I hope you'll listen to the three that follow. Uh, for Andrew and I to put nine or 10 months work into something like this, I hope it gives you some indication of how important we think it is. And uh, I, <laughs> I guess we'll see. Uh, yeah, I'm excited for it. I'm thankful to Andrew for, for that. I'm thankful for all of you who listen to this stuff. You know, the Hunt Talk Radio podcast isn't here to necessarily be an echo chamber. It's here at times to have someone shake, shake me and, and rattle my cage a little bit, and hopefully we do a little bit of the same for the audience and the listener. Uh, and that's that's the purpose. You know, I'm not interested in doing what's easy. I'm interested in doing what makes a difference. So that's what these next four podcasts will hopefully do. Thanks for being here. Andrew McKeon, how are you doing today? Uh, it's a good day in late August. We got upland bird season on the way. Archery season's going to start and cross country season is well in full swing. I couldn't be better. Well, uh, for our audience, where you're not talking cross-country skiing. I am not talking cross-country <laughs> skiing. I'm talking about the only legitimate use for a golf course, which is, run, <laughs> which is high, school, high school distance running. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, I, I appreciate you being here. It is a beautiful late August morning here in Bozeman also. Uh, and this weekend... Elk, archery elk and deer season starts dove season grouse season opens in a couple days it's like good thing i got a hold of you today you are exactly right i will actually squander the uh, upland opener by sitting on the scotty glasgow scotty cruiser on the way to kalispell long oh. trip across the high line but uh i am going to be Kind of a reverse migration. I'm already starting to see the big uh, trucks with all the bird dog trailers coming through, and yeah. we're definitely on the uh, on the migration route. <laughs> <laughs> the, the hunter migration route, not the sharp tail migration route. Right. <laughs> oh well, <clears throat> you and I this winter, the brutal winter of 22-23, must have really been bored. Because we started back and forth with this document about a whole lot of things affecting 
our our world things about where the future of of hunting is and you know a lot of stuff that's changing in our society some of the values being expressed and then we we had some really vivid examples of how that is going to impact us uh, in in the hunting angling space this space at that you and I tend to operate in, you know, people like to use tags and labels, all that stuff. But, uh, you and I both were, uh, talking about these things. I'm like, well, what do you say we do some podcasts on this? So appreciate you doing that. Well, we are pretty methodical people, I guess, because yeah, we've been working, we've been chipping away at this, uh, thing for, I don't know, six, seven, eight, nine months. Yeah. So we don't uh, we don't do anything, I guess, that fast. But it must mean that we're very good craftsmen. <laughs> yeah. Well. Well. The good part about it is, Andrew, since you and I first started doing this, I think a little bit of it was uh, generated by last fall uh, the Wildlife Society, which is the professional body of scientists and biologists and wildlife managers, had a conference in Spokane, and they invited a group there to give a different view of of what wildlife management should be and then we've had the ongoing stuff in washington and since we've started this document back and forth we've had big changes in colorado we've had things going on in new mexico and this is this is the the issue of our time i think i i a 100 percent agree and Really, to frame it up, what we're talking about is this collision between, I think, values. We're seeing um, on the commission side of the world, uh, commissioners being appointed who represent a different constituency and a different sort of way of valuing wildlife. And I think it got both of our attention because if if we share one thing, I think we are – we're looking forward a little bit. um, And I think both of us recognize and and – and I think also to bring in a lot of the people we talk to and, and respect, there's a widening recognition that this is not going away, that this is something that we need to talk about, think through, and 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 have a plan around instead of just kind of reactively either responding or not responding. Because I think yeah. there's a lot of people in our world who still don't see what's coming. Yeah, that's and that's my biggest concern. There, there's... Uh, the danger of you know crying wolf too much and pretty soon everyone's like there are no wolves here just you know shut up so i i don't want to overstate things if they don't deserve being overstated uh i want them to be properly stated and in this case the change of many appointed positions being filled by they call, the term they use to call themselves, they, they try to call it mutualists versus traditionalists. I guess you and I, in their labeling and categories, were traditionalists and they're mutualists. And point what, what's kind of the things we're referencing to, uh, Washington has gotten rid of their spring bear season. They've appointed uh, a majority of commissioners to their Fish and Wildlife Commission that have now put forth a plan that de-emphasizes hunting and, and other aspects that are traditional wildlife management tools and wildlife management funding sources. Similar effort underway in Colorado uh, to some degree in New Mexico. And you and I get to travel a lot 
uh, I get involved in a lot of things. A lot of times probably get jousted with by people with different viewpoints. Uh, and I, I just think it's, it's inherent on people like us to be talking about this. One of the, I like the, I like the idea of bringing up terms because I think those kind of matter and they help frame the discussion a little bit. Um, you know, in the old days, and maybe they weren't that old, probably about as old as when we started our document sharing, <laughs> we, we would have been called consumptive users. Right. So yep. we buy licenses, we, we hunt with at, at least, if not the full intent, the intent of collecting mm-hmm. animals for our own use and our family's use. Yep. What's interesting about that is, you know, the other side that you just described as mutualists have, I think, in our community been called non-consumptive users. And the reason I like that you changed that around a little bit is that's kind of a myth to me, too, is a non-consumptive user who drives a car and lives in a house and <laughs> occupies wildlife habitat is pretty consumptive. Um, yeah. The thing I actually, I like, we're, we've got a, a mutual friend Tony Wasley, who was the director of Nevada's Game Commission or uh, Wildlife Agency, who's now taken on a national job at the Wildlife Management Institute, he he uses those terms too. But he also says you and I might actually be defined as as pluralists as well. We can kind of see a little huh. bit of um, how the world is working. Uh, from a consumptive and non-consumptive, from a traditional and maybe a little bit of a mutualistic standpoint. But mm-hmm. what scares me, and and I think this is the origin of a little bit of our discussion, is what we're seeing in Washington, what we're seeing in, in Colorado for sure, we'll, I'd love to auger into those a little bit in some mm-hmm. detail, are, are these mutualists, to use your term and their term, who really don't have a lot of regard for the traditions that we have come from and right. uh, uh, kind of the structures that have been pretty successful in managing wildlife for the last century. And, and that's, I think, what's what gotten my attention is, okay, we recognize that the world's changing all around us every day. Um, and if we don't, then, boy, we'd better, we'd better get our head up. Um, but these, these, this new generation of commissioners are pretty activists. They are, they're not yeah. wanting to make a lot of room for the folks who came before. Right. And that's the, the uh, people will point to all the reasons for that. And we'll explore a lot of that because we're very lucky that this is going to be a four part series. Uh, this is the first part. Uh, we're going to have a former Washington wildlife commissioner on one of these. We're going to have Tony Wasley, former director of Nevada Department of Wildlife on another one. And they're going to give us some really good insight to how this problem is framed in in places that are maybe a little more urbanized. You and I live in Montana. If you live in Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, the Dakotas, you know, some pretty rural states without a large urban center or urban centers that drive your politics, you can kind of put your head in the sand on this. And, ah, this will never happen. This, this doesn't affect me. Well, I have news for you, folks. This is well-orchestrated, well-funded, it's intentional, and it's all part of, you know, an idea to take the value system of a certain mindset 
and replace our the way that we have had our relationships with with wildlife wild places wild things and and they really don't have a like you said they don't have a lot of regard and their response to us providing our you know history our story our relevance is well you've mistaken me for someone who cares the hunt talk radio podcast is brought to you by go hunt and as you know i use that a lot and i use it for getting tags i use it for planning hunts i use it for maps i use it for the store you name it i use it and everything i need is right in one place but now they've moved a lot of it over to the app and the most powerful thing for me is their filtering which is on the app where when you are on your phone you can be in the app do the filtering and go right to the maps really cool go check it out if you want to sign up for go hunt use promo code randy out at gohunt.com and they will put $50 a store credit into your account with promo code Randy. Nosler Ammunition is the official ammunition of Hunt Talk Radio and every other platform that we produce. Nosler was founded in 1948 by John Nosler. And over that time, Nosler Ammunition has proven time and again why so many hunters and shooters trust Nosler. Whether it's Nosler bullets, components, or their premium-grade ammunition, Nosler's reputation at quality shines through. We shoot exclusively Nosler E-tips, Acubons, and partitions in all of our rifles. And all of those can be found at Nosler.com or look for them at fine retailers near you. The Hunt Talk Radio podcast is brought to you by Mystery Ranch Backpacks. For years, I've been using Mystery Ranch Packs. It might be the Metcalf or the Beartooth, the Sawtooth or the Pintler. No matter which Mystery Ranch Pack you choose, here's how you can save 10% on your purchase. Go to the Go Hunt Gear Shop, GoHunt.com, put a Mystery Ranch Pack in your cart, and when you check out using promo code RANDY, you're going to save 10% off that pack and most of the other regular priced items in your cart. Mr. Ranch backpacks can't beat them. Go check them out. <laughs> and you know, it would be easy to say, oh, I don't want to deal with that. I got enough going on. But this is, I think, the part that worries you and I is if we aren't paying attention to this, someday we're going to wake up and we're going to have commissions appointed people or friends of appointed people who have realized how our current governance, our current structures can, you, you can grab the wheel pretty easily there, easier than we ever expected. And you can do an awful lot of changing, of course, with only a short, short time with your hands on the wheel of wildlife management. I think a lot of people, uh, our friends or folks that are within our world would push back on that and say, Hey, wait a minute, Randy and McKean, I'm pretty active. I'm, I'm aware I'm, I go to those commission meetings, our season setting meetings here in Montana. And I, I, I I'm pretty aware I pay attention. Mm-hmm. They're right. And they are paying attention, but in some ways we've been distracted by the minutia of wildlife management. I go to these meetings a lot, you know, as, yep. as you know, I actually served as a commissioner for a brief yep. time and, and 
which was a culmination, I think, of a lot of this watching the world and trying to be engaged and active. But our community will bicker and talk about and fight a reduction from 25 sheep tags to 20. Yep. Um, or from 25 to 30. And we will go to the mat on some of these things. Yep. And while we're wrestling over these little small adjustments, we're missing, I believe, that bigger picture that you're talking about of that that governance level. Uh, what's actually happening with these appointed folks? We've seen what's happened with legislators trying to influence wildlife management. And this is really just an extension of that. Yeah. In a lot of these states, they have maybe, these folks have not been able to activate their you know, kind of belief system and what they would like to see in terms of future management through legislation. So they've got uh, a governor who is aligned with their worldviews, appoints them to a commission. And so in some ways, this is a pretty easy, as you say, and it's an easy mechanism to uh, either either join or start to take over. Um, yeah. So I, I just I want to I want to kind of caution folks that being involved uh, may be kind of uncomfortable as we go forward because these are going to be some pretty big issues that rise above uh, I think our kind of small world that we're all comfortable living in to some of these bigger things that involve demographic change that involve really a whole different way of looking at the environment and the natural world and. And then also, I think the reality of everything from climate change to urbanization to just what's happening in the big picture in America. Yeah. And I think the urbanization one is an easy one for a lot of people to to look at and say, yeah, I've noticed that this is really happening. And it happens in a geographic sense and in a physical sense where you see, oh, this used to be a wetlands. Now it's a shopping mall or you, you, no matter where you live, you can see urbanization and development happening. But urbanization in terms of uh, value systems is also happening. And Folks may not realize this, but some of the Western states are the most urbanized states. And when, when they measure that, they say where the majority of your population lives in very few geographic areas versus spread out across your state. So you look at places like Washington, right? The I-5 corridor. Other than Spokane, that, that, they're calling the shots, and Spokane is kind of like the the bigger of the of the stepchildren who are ignored. But uh, and then you get to Oregon, and you have something very similar all the way from Portland down to Eugene, uh, that whole corridor. You get to Colorado, you have the Front Range. You get to New Mexico, you have Albuquerque and Santa Fe. You go to Nevada, you have Vegas and Reno. You go to Arizona, you have Phoenix, Tucson, and Flagstaff. It's very urbanized. Well, look ahead a little bit to Idaho, where you've got that same thing happening around Boise and the Snake River Plain. Yep. You can uh, you know, you can go to Wyoming a little bit. Obviously, you got Jackson and and you've got sort of Laramie Cheyenne, but you know, in some ways we've in Montana here, we've lived in a little bit of a luxury of having dispersed um, urbanization that's happening in kind of smaller cells. 
Yeah. But I think you can just sort of cross your eyes a little bit, blur the future, and you can start to see this happening in in places that we never really imagined it could. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say in Montana, I'm living it right here in Bozeman. You know, Bozeman, Missoula, Billings, Helena, Kalispell. Uh, who would think Montana would ever get quote unquote urbanized, but a larger percentage of our population is getting concentrated in a few cities. And that urbanization often occurs in a manner that disconnects people from out in your part of the world, right? Yep. Probably every kid in Glasgow has went out and helped somebody put up hay or helped with calving or helped with something that connects them to an understanding of food and land and this undeniable cycle that something died so we can eat. You get kids in Bozeman, and Bozeman's only 60,000 people. You get some of them, or adults even, where uh, they, they, they don't make that connection. And the larger the city, the more generations within, the more generations disconnected from that hands-on experience of this died, we ate, or this was planted and displaced wildlife, and this got converted to food. All these things about uh, food and, and the cycles of the <laughs> undeniable equation on this planet since time began that if a, species A is going to live, species B and some other species are going to die. I, I don't know. that. That's <laughs> to deny that... <laughs> it's uh I, I don't know i guess some people can rationalize that but anyhow that that urbanization i think a lot of my audience can relate to and a lot of people would point to when you urbanize like that and you start having generations that are no longer having a connection to their food where it comes from how it's done you start to see why there could be a different value system as it relates to wild things or even tame things mm -hmm. or food. You know, the, uh, about every three-year survey of American attitudes towards hunting and fishing and trapping just came mm -hmm. out this summer. Yeah. You know, and I was reporting on it quite a bit. There was a kind of a distressing um, decrease in public approval for hunting. And, when you kind of scratch below the surface of that, you looked at where um, geographically and also uh, ethnically and age-related, so all of these sort of demographic markers uh, were coming from. And to your point, it was a lot of urban West Coast. I don't want to call it, you know, use the term mm -hmm. urban elites or coastal elites or anything like that. But I think what 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 it showed me was that disconnection uh, is real in yeah. terms of folks, not for all the right reasons and probably good, uh, well-reasoned reasons, just don't have that organic connection anymore with, mm -hmm. you know, their, their heritage. You know, the uncle on the farm is now the great uncle on the farm. And right. with every year, we're losing that kind of real uh familial connection to the land. And I think that's what's showing up in all of these attitudes that are changing too. Yeah. And when those surveys came out, 
everyone tried to put a spin on it of, oh, we still have whatever, 70% approval or whatever. Well, that's down from what it was a while back. It's down from what it was 10 years ago and 20 years ago. And at some point in time, we're going to hit this critical mass where our traditional way of, of how we've done things and what role we played in that is it going to be below 50%. And I want to be having discussions and engaging in policy and engaging in governance well before that happens. And I just, that that's a big part of the purpose of this four-part episode is to paint the picture of here's what's happening. And I think people have seen it, read about it in their news stories. It's easy to ignore it and say, well, that's not my problem. I don't live in Washington or Colorado or New Mexico or wherever. I think you and I are both here to say, no, this is your problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> As we were talking a little bit about... Um, it, some of the real friction points here, you brought up, uh, I think, a really interesting tip of the iceberg. And this is, a, this is the, the notion of large carnivores mm-hmm. and how they have become these catalytic, almost uh, bigger, than, bigger than real life uh, yep. symbols on both sides. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to get your take on it a little bit, because when I look at some of the organized opposition to what we call this traditional wildlife management uh, system, large carnivores are what, you know, I'm talking wolves and grizzly bears and coyotes Mm -hmm. um, and mountain lions are what really mobilizes this group of folks who say, we have done a disservice to these large carnivores in our wildlife management and our consumptive way of looking at the world where mm-hmm. all we want to do is grow big bulls, big bucks, and then shoot them almost like they're farm animals. Yeah. I'm obviously exaggerating, but that's really, I've seen that articulated from this other side oh, yeah. of the coin. But that is how they paint that story. On the other hand, look at our community and we cannot find enough reasons to persecute large carnivores in our yep. in our particular side of the world. I mean, we yep. have grown up as a, with a cultural hatred of wolves. Mm-hmm. Um, we can't seem to find room for grizzly bear expansion. Mountain lions have all got to go, and coyotes we just persecute because they're there. Yeah. So I think we have to look at what we are doing in terms of managing carnivores is really a bigger. It's a it's symbolic of a much bigger issue uh, mm. and 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 system that I think we can manifest or we can sort of express on both sides of that coin. So I'd love your mm-hmm. take on that. You're somebody who's thought a lot about this. Yeah, uh, <laughs> this is where I'm probably going to lose half my audience when I say this. The hypocrisy that we demonstrate in complaining that the other side ignores real science, right? We like to say, oh, they they disregard the science. When it comes to large carnivores, in general, the loudmouths in the hunting side of the equation do the same exact thing. So how can we criticize or point out the flaw in the other way of thinking when we are just as guilty 
of doing the same thing ourselves. And this gets a little bit to the old saying, you know, grandma would say, hey, get your own house in order before you worry about someone else's house. Uh, look at all the data that shows the effects of predation. I don't care whether it's grizzly bears, black bears, mountain lions, you name it, wolves. Yes, they have an effect. But what has a greater effect and can soften that amplification of predation is habitat. Hunt Talk Radio is brought to you by Outdoor Class. Outdoor Class is an online learning platform that includes access to courses from some of hunting's most trusted experts. You'll find courses by my buddy Corey Jacobson, Remy Warren, me, Hank Shaw, John Barklow, Jamie Teagan, and the list is growing and growing. And here's the other cool part. My buddy Corey, who founded the University of Elk Hunting course, the popular course that is everything known about elk hunting, his course is now part of your subscription to Outdoor Class. So, all for one subscription, at one price, you get all of the Outdoor Class courses, plus Corey's University of Elk Hunting. Go to OutdoorClass.com, use promo code RANDY when you sign up, and you're going to save 20%. This will be great information for any hunter. Hunt Talk Radio is brought to you by Outdoor Class, an online learning platform that includes access to courses from some of hunting's most trusted experts. Outdoor Class now includes the University of Elk Hunting course from my buddy Corey Jacobson. All these courses in one single subscription at one price. Go to OutdoorClass.com and use promo code RANDY to save 20% when you sign up. This is great information for any hunter at any level. The Hunt Talk Radio podcast is also presented by our wonderful friends at Mountain Tough. If you're like me and you want to hunt until you're 80, or maybe you just want to keep up with the younger folks or your kids later in life, you need to start focusing on your health and your nutrition. It's never too late to get started. I just started and I'm 59. And yeah, I should have started 20 years ago, but I've made that commitment and the Mountain Tough app makes it so easy. So if you want to invest in your health and your hunting, start your free trial today. Go to mountaintough.com and when you sign up for the free trial, they're going to give you 14 days free. But when you sign up and use promo code RANDY, they're going to add an extra 30 days onto that free trial when you select the monthly plan. And so that, that, that's, the science tells us if we spent more time focusing on habitat, we would have more wildlife. We would have more species. There'd be more animals on the mountain or out on the prairie and opportunity would be greater. And the impacts of predation would be far, far less. But there's no money to be made preaching habitat. There is snake oil to be sold by preaching, kill all the grizzly bears, kill all the mountain lions, kill all the wolves, shoot, shovel, and shut up. And I'm here to say that that is the worst thing we can do to let that happen, to let that be the narrative in our world, because it, I, I don't care if someone says that to their buddy or whatever. I don't care if they really think that. 
But when that becomes the narrative that we put out there, we now have lost every bit of credibility to criticize the other side because they are denying this reality of this equation that for something to live, other things die. Okay, we we we, uh, we agree with that in uh, among us, but for us to then say, oh, they just have this warm and fuzzy. This is their belief system. This is like a religion to them. They aren't they aren't listening to what the science says. Well, what the hell are we doing? Right. That's right. So uh, I, I and I, I I hunt black bears. I already, I, I got black bear meat in my freezer. I, I hunt wolves. I, 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 it's, it's not a statement of, oh, we got we hands off. No, we have to manage these things. But when you want to blame every problem in the wildlife world on that shiny object called a wolf or a grizzly bear or a mountain lion, you have lost most of the credibility to enter and engage in this debate. Well, I mentioned this partly because I wanted to see evangelical Randy (laughs) 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 Uh, hold, hold court, hold, uh, hold church on this. But I, I, there's two things I want to pick apart on that. One is the idea of the religious values that are applied to carnivores on both sides of the equation, Mm -hmm. I think are worth paying attention to. And I throw that out because I encourage listeners to, when you see, bears and mountain lions and coyotes used as a, as a tool pay a special attention to what's going on there right the second thing is i think you did a great job of sort of framing up what the the way that we just absolutely exaggerate the impact of carnivores large carnivores in our particular world but go to a website called wildlife for all yeah, this is one of the sort of a, a repository or the, the the headquarters of a lot of this movement that's looking to change the way that we manage wildlife in America. And look at how they celebrate carnivores and use yep. carnivores as this religious icon, the same mm-hmm. as we do. Yeah, uh, there's a, there's a, a sort of fellow travelers called the Coyote Project. Look at how they treat carnivores mm-hmm. as the 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 most important piece of the equation not habitat like you said randy not mm-hmm. scientific management not equitable distribution of a public resource but as this as this totemic uh larger than could possibly be uh, object that is going to drive everything yeah and and you know we we've given them that platform to do that in many respects. And, you know, when, if, if anyone wants to do an interesting read, there's a book out there called, I think it's called the history of concert. No, the, the history of hunting and the image in America or something like that. It's about the influences that influenced how we got to where we are today. And when you talk about religion, there, there are a lot of religious principles buried in the way that hunters and the hunting community forms a narrative about these carnivores. You can go back to Norse religion. You can go back to pre-Christian religion. They had this little red riding hood is going to come and eat grandma related to these large carnivores. Well, 
that has a, it, it came to the U.S. with us uh, when when this uh, continent got uh, colonized uh, by Europeans. And you know, if you look at what was the primary uh, religious belief at the time of of say our our country being formed as a its own independent country, it was this Jeffersonian agrarian principle. And that principle was built on getting rid of anything that could compete with the agrarian person. Because this agrarian person, under that theory, the Jeffersonian view was like, this was as high as you could get in, in a society. That's why early on, you needed acreage, you needed land to be a voter. It wasn't just you masses, you people out there hunting, you know, you scroungy backwoodsman type. So if you have a a view that, that is a little wider and you want to go back and check this out, we have a lot of religious influence in how we view these large carnivores. The other side has, if you study what are the, there's anywhere from four to eight basic components of a religion, they definitely have a religious view of this. And they're out, it's a, in effect, they're the, I could almost make the case they are a new age religion and they want us to adopt their religious views. I, Boy, I hadn't really framed it that way, but I think you're onto something. And and if you look at actually the one of the three new commissioners appointed in Colorado mm-hmm. is uh, is the head of the University of Denver's uh, law particular school of law that looks at 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 animal rights and right. animal not, law, right? Not animal welfare necessarily, but even well beyond that, because I think most all of us want animal welfare, right? We want every living species to have the best life while they're alive. But when you take it to that next level, they have developed a curriculum around rights. Uh, (laughs) Which is taking that religious, religiosity on human rights and what our intrinsic value as humans that if you, you know, go back to the verbiage of we are children of God, whatever that God is. Mm-hmm. Well, are animals also children of God? And then therefore, do they, are they co-equal in terms of rights? <laughs> that's, that's uh, you know, the, the, I guess the, I'm, I like the way that you said that because it, it, it's a little bit easier to see that as almost like this mindset of, of, religious spirituality whatever term you want to put to it principles that now you're going to take the the animal world and you're going to put them on this same level as humans which in our country you know we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights of life liberty and the pursuit of happiness is that are we going to change this <laughs> preamble to say all men and animals are created equal? So, well, that's you know that is maybe an extreme example of what's happening, right. but but it is what is happening. I, yeah. I think though, if you look at it in this larger context, it's a little bit more 
organic and maybe familiar to us as uh, as hunters and as students of wildlife management and the history of wildlife management we've we've seen in some ways a lot of this evolution from the very start you know when we when we created the science of wildlife management with Aldo Leopold and mm-hmm. and those fellows the yep. idea was game protection right i mean that was really how we started this and it's not that that far a shout from your notion of jeffersonian agrarian sort of models that we are going to apply um this harvestable surplus uh after we've actually got to protect them first and some of that was done with habitat some of that was done with regulations and and some of that was done with sort of this idea of restraining ourselves in our own community yep but we went from game protection to wildlife policy and wildlife conservation and I look back at my colleagues from Fish, Wildlife, and Parks here in Montana and sort of the, the, the old graybeards when I joined the department were of that generation that, was, that were really, they were college educated in wildlife management and this idea of, of wildlife conservation was really in their identities and in their DNA. Mm-hmm. I would argue that what we're seeing now is a change from wildlife conservation to conservation for all species. Yep. And, and, a, and a larger public demand for that. And you can mm-hmm. see it in a lot of different ways. Uh, we can yep. see it in how we describe wildlife and what we owe wild animals and wild places. I'm not talking just the huntable ones, just the right. game populations, but this, this full species um, spectrum of conservation. Mm-hmm. And so I think in some ways, we're, this is an organic evolution. We, we're... Right. We've grown into this. And now what we have to do is figure out what that really means. Yeah. And that's, uh, I, I think that parallel to that had been, if you want to date the wildlife conservation movement back to, let's say, somewhere, someone go as far back as Roosevelt and, and Pinchot and Grinnell and them. But where it really got legs and got funding was in the 30s with Pittman Robertson, Duck Stamp Act. I mean, there are just all kinds of things that happened then. So we're 80 years into that. At some point in time, we've went from recovery to now manage, you know, sustainability because let's face it, who, who in 1940 would have ever thought there'd be goose shit on every golf course in America? Who would have thought that turkeys would have been a nuisance animal? Who would have thought that you'd have so many whitetails in urban settings, suburban settings, that you'd hire sharpshooters to come in and thin them out? So it, our models were built for this focus on mostly game species and recovery of those game species. Now, over the last 20, 30 years, we've probably really transitioned more heavily to maintaining or or managing what sometimes is too much of a good thing. But along with that, what, you know, the old rising tide floats all boats, in order to accomplish a lot of that, we did a lot of habitat work. And with that came the non-game species, as a lot like to call them. And as people see these non-game species, you know, I, I love it when I see, you know, a bird 
sitting on my back porch or whatever it might be. It, it might be a wild animal that I have no intention of ever eating. It's like, oh, that's really cool. So I, mm-hmm. I fully understand America's infatuation with wild things. Uh, I think the more we've urbanized and the more we are disconnected to it, maybe the more it fascinates people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have all of this going on at the same time. We had this thing put together about 15, 20 years ago. Uh, some people we know, Shane Mahoney, Dr. Val Geis, and, and John Organ worked on putting together what we call the North American model of wildlife conservation. It's not like a Bible. It's not like, here's the checklist of what you got to do. It was put together to say, here's kind of the principles. Here's seven ideas that kind of seem to be a common thread across all species, across state and provincial management strategies. Well, I've, I've done a lot of podcasts with Shane Mahoney and, Shane is an advocate that it might be time that we got to rethink some of this stuff. And now I'm sure (laughs) when those words left my mouth, the audience driving down the road probably just hit the brakes and said, I'm going to go find Newberg and I'm going to put a pot knot on his head. But But you're you're right. That North American model, I think a lot of people have looked at it as almost like a museum piece. Like, oh, here's our here's our golden chalice. This is like mm-hmm. our origin story. But it's yeah. a living explanation of of things that in some ways when we look back over that history, we can see some blind spots. Yeah. Private land was really not and private land owners and private land managers of wildlife were really not considered in that. Right. I think you noted tribal uh, governance indigenous. And, and indigenous hunters and, and resources were really not considered in that. Yeah. So I, I think one of the things that that's played in since it came out, and if you talk to Shane or John about it, they're like, that was not the intention. Uh, hunters almost now use it and anglers use it as this, uh, you know, Moses came down with the Ten Commandments etched in slate, and this is how it's going to be. And it, it, it's given us kind of a, a fallback safety net without having to look forward. It, it allowed us to say, well, this is how it is. And, and you can find comfort in that and not have to deal with these fuzzy, changing, discomforting uh, evolutions. Uh, <clears throat> I think, like all things, as something changes as rapidly as societies change, technology changes, just human perceptions and, and values change. Anything that's held to not be adaptable or held to be real concrete, and this is how it is, uh, that's <laughs> that's going to be a tough one to to play. And then what happens is we have some pieces in there that this other spirituality, religious, whatever whatever we want to call it, mindset has taken parts of it, like the public trust doctrine. And they think the public trust doctrine is their silver bullet. That's how they're going to attack what what they don't like. And here it is. It's it's one of the cores. It's one of the seven main tenants, and some would argue the main tenant of the North American model. It's... uh they feel like we have 
violated the spirit of it because yeah. according to their worldview, and, and they're not wrong about this in some ways, they have been left out. If, if it's mm-hmm. truly a public trust responsibility, then that should involve every member of the public co-equally. Yep. Yep. Um, I think one reason that notion has gotten perverted and one reason that our conversation may surprise a lot of your listeners is when you talked about the origins of our structures for wildlife Mm -hmm. management, embedded within that was this idea that we are going to pay that, that we as users of the resource anglers or hunters or trappers are going to pay for wildlife management. We're going to fund these agencies that are then going to recover and then conserve wildlife. And by doing that, we own a little more of the outcome. Mm -hmm. We pay for it. Damn it. And that has given us, I think a couple of things. One's it's given us a, a confirmed seat at the table. Yep. Uh, and has given us expectations that our wildlife resources are going to be managed for our benefit because we pay for them. Yeah. I think it's been one of the secrets of our success as, as a community and as a, as a movement to bring wildlife back. It is a genius system. Mm-hmm. But one of the blind spots in it is it can be a little bit uh, of a closed system. We don't, because we pay for it, we have certain expectations we have been looking inside to such a degree we haven't seen people knocking politely on the door to be let in to this. <laughs> and now they're not knocking politely anymore. They no. are, they've got battering rams that is called politics, partisan politics, and they are coming in the door. Yep. Um, so I just want to frame that up a little bit because I think that that has been something that we've not anticipated i think appropriately yeah and you know i went out you mentioned this website wildlife for all i went out there and they have a whole page on the public trust doctrine and how they think it applies well my audience has heard me nerd out on this stuff before because they know that in my real life i'm a trust accountant that that i specialize for 35 years in trust stuff i'm the trustee of oodles of trusts so if they want to start nerding out on on uh, trust law and the public trust doctrine, I'm your guy. Okay, just pack a lunch because we're going to be here for a while. Uh, but you know, here here's again, this is where you got to have your own house in order before you can really start worrying about the other guy's house. But I'm going to start with their house. They want to say that every beneficiary of the public trust is equal. And that is true. So the public trust doctrine, as it applies to wildlife, is a state-based public trust system. In other words, you have appointed and elected trustees, and we're going to get into that because that's how this is being kind of, in my mind, allowing people to grab a hold of the wheel. But a commissioner, a legislature, a governor... You're all trustees of this public trust. Your job is to manage the corpus of the trust. The corpus is a Latin term for asset. In other words, the the core of the trust is the asset of wildlife and wildlife habitat and, and, and opportunity. Below that, you have the beneficiaries. 
every trustee is responsible to those beneficiaries equally, both current and future beneficiaries. Thus, Roosevelt's comments always of those yet in the womb of time or those yet unborn. Uh, so you have all state citizens equal as a beneficiary of the trust. But then you have other people who may be a beneficiary that have another classification. And this is where the other side disregards this. You have what are called stakeholders of the trust. A trustee cannot ignore the important stakeholders that keep the trust corpus intact for these beneficiaries. So the other side wants to say, oh, ignore that those stakeholders, the, the, we, they're just beneficiaries. They're like all of us. Who cares if they pay more? Well, as a trustee, I cannot ignore my important stakeholders and what they contribute to the value of the trust or my trust is going to collapse and I'm not going to have any corpus for the current and future beneficiaries to enjoy, to benefit from. So that's where the other side takes our public trust doctrine and they want to paint it all fuzzy and create this lowest common denominator called beneficiary, which is a valid concept. And in the process, disregard this entire thing called stakeholders. Let's use our state of Montana. Two thirds of our land is private land. And that's where a lot of this corpus, this wildlife lives. Imagine if we said, oh, we're going to disregard all of you as stakeholders. You're just an ordinary beneficiary. Who cares if you got a herd of 400 elk living on your property? You've done all this conservation work for upland nesting habitat. Bob. You're just like the, you know, you're, you're, you're just one of the beneficiaries. Well, me as trustee, I am completely violating my fiduciary duty if I disregard those important stakeholders. And that's where they're trying to take the public trust doctrine, oversimplify it, and say, oh, we're all equal. Doesn't matter if you pay or don't pay. Doesn't matter if you sustain and keep the system intact through your funding and your advocacy and buying habitat and everything else. We're just all equal. And therefore, we deserve an equal seat at the table or more. This is a democracy. We're, we're, if our governor is elected, you know, the people spoke and we're going to fill that commission full of whoever the governor or, you know, the governor's brother or the, the governor's, you know, whoever wants. That That is not how a trust system works. And the, this whole, uh, one of the geniuses of the court case in 1842, Martin, Martin versus Waddell, when the U.S. Supreme Court said a couple things. One, wildlife was never granted to the federal government. So under the 10th Amendment, any asset and rights not granted to the federal governments are by default retained by the state. So that established it as a state-based system. Two, it said that wildlife is transient just like water, and therefore it should be managed under a public trust doctrine. That was two genius things that we've been it's it's the foundation that this house got built on since 1842. There's been a lot of discussion in our world about broadening the funding base. We've yep. seen uh, CARA, the 
the Reinvestment Act, we've seen yep. Carol Light, it was going to tax backpacks to broaden the funding yep. base. Yep. We've seen lots of, uh, I think, big-hearted and smart attempts to broaden this funding base for, mm-hmm. uh, for the primary reason of, I think, broadening what it means to be a stakeholder. And broadening the management authority and and ability of state agencies to manage that thing we talked about a little bit ago, which is conservation for all species, not just the ones that we hunt. Yep. And so there's been a lot of energy for 25 years around this. You know, we've seen <laughs> yeah. it. We've seen it most recently in what's called the Reinvesting in America's Wildlife Act or RALA. Yep. And and there would be a lot of money involved that could go to state agencies to keep. Uh, imperiled species off the endangered species list to keep them from going extinct. Yep. I would like to get your take on how that backs into this governance discussion. Are we are we in danger of kind of losing a little bit of not only our moral authority, but our financial authority for management and the foundation that you talked about that we built and also losing our stakeholder benefits, that, that kind of mm-hmm. that special designation as a trustee yeah. or as a, as a beneficiary um, if we do broaden the base. Is that something that we need to keep an eye on? Oh, absolutely, because it, uh, I'm, I'm going to make an argument for both sides of it. One, I've always been an advocate that the trust of wildlife needs more funding from more sources. The concern is for some, and I I can see the dangers in this, is, okay, now you're going to bring in other stakeholders. We're not talking beneficiaries. We're talking stakeholders who are contributing as much, maybe more to the trust corpus than us, quote unquote, traditional users are. So now if I'm a trustee and some other group comes forth and they're paying an equal share guess what? They're now the same level of, of stakeholder as the hunter-angler community. But the trust needs funding. Okay? Right. We have, whether we want to admit it or not, we have grizzly bears to be managed. We have, you know, black-footed fares to be managed. We have, the, the name it, well, you know, whatever you want to put on that list. We need more funding. So, under a true trustee relationship, a, a trustee that understood their duties, and this is part of the problem of elected and appointed people, they, they don't understand they're a trustee or if they're like, oh, I'm a trustee, they have no idea what that means. They have no idea how they're accountable to stake, how, what their relationship with stakeholders should be or what their accountability to beneficiaries are. So the, the process can get hijacked, but to your point of this outside funding, if we don't, and I think history shows this in, in our country, if you don't accept and embrace change, someone else is going to come and change it with a sledgehammer, and you probably aren't going to like that outcome. And it may not happen in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. But as sure as I'm sitting here, Andrew, there will be changing mechanisms to the funding of wildlife in this country, whether it's RAWA, whether it's sales taxes, whether it's whatever. Eventually, those other groups are going to start putting some funding to this. And if they do, they are going to hold the trustees accountable 
and say, we are an equal stakeholder to these hunters, to these anglers, to these trappers. Enough of this. Start managing differently. So the, often I hear people say, well, I don't want to give them a seat at the table. Okay. Then why were you down bitching about a raise in your license from $20 to $22? Oh, damn. Game warden doesn't need new tires. Look at him. He's driving a new Get over it, pal. Yep. My, my point of that is we can't have our cake and eat it too. So we're at that crossroads. Remember I said uh, at first there was light, polite tapping on the door? Yeah. And now it's not so polite anymore. And I right. think I think one of the things that is making this uh, an uncomfortable moment in time is twofold. One, the you call it the other side, and it's hard not to see it as this sort of diametrically opposed group. I, I'd like to, right. I'm kind of a moderate in all things, and I'd like to find ways that we can kind of find a middle ground. I, mm-hmm. I honestly don't know how much middle ground there is at this point. Maybe in time we'll find it. But right yeah. now, the sides are sort of are building up uh, scar tissue and defensive <laughs> bulwarks. <laughs> yeah. But I'm going to read you one thing from the Wildlife for All um, website. And, and that is um, state wildlife management. This is why their movement matters. State wildlife management has been hijacked by a minority of people whose views are out of step with science and public attitudes towards wildlife. Well, Randy, that's you and me. Um, mm-hmm. I, so that's on that side. On our side, I think what I see exhibited is um, is fear-based reaction mm-hmm. that is coming from a scarcity principle. Yep. And across human and honestly across wildlife communities as well, when there's a perception of scarcity, people get extremely defensive and they get extremely... Uh, selfish in terms of making sure yep. that they get their share of a diminishing resource. Yep. What I worry about in this moment in time is that things can get pretty nasty if you start managing <laughs> or reacting because of a perception of scarcity. Yep. I would love to see us find a way of talking about managing actually from a position of abundance. We have done yep. a hell of a job of creating abundance, whether it's those nuisance geese or deer, whether it's more elk than we've ever had, more turkeys and antelope. And also because of what we have done for all those game species, we have risen the tide for everything. We've got more abundant wildlife in more places than we have in since we've been a nation. Yeah. It's not to say we don't have problems. We do. We've got, uh, we've got bird populations that are plummeting in a lot of places. We've got habitat, uh, restrictions. We've got human development in places that is, we really need to be paying attention to it. But if we do this right, we can have it all. We've got enough to go around and to share. But what I worry about is on our side of the ledger, we're going to be so resistant to change that when it comes, we're not going to be ready for it. And on the other side, they're going to be so motivated by this seismic level of change that we're going to be swept up in sort of a tsunami of 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 reimagining what wildlife conservation is. Yeah. And what what was that sentence you read off their website? It said something about whose values, uh something 
Yeah, who's pe- who's a minority of people whose views are out of step with science and public attitudes towards wildlife. Yeah, so uh, they're correct in stating we are a minority of the American population. But when they say who's whatever, they, it's the, they didn't want to use the term values, it sounds like to me, because then it would be easy to say, oh, your values are correct, but everyone else's values are wrong. And whenever you, and this is why I point out, try to point out whenever we have this hypocrisy on the hunting side, whenever you can't make a rational argument based on logic, science, known fact, you start using these values and you start prioritizing or appropriating more correctness to your value versus some value you disagree with. And when you're not able to do that, history has shown you use political mechanism to accomplish that. Right? That's that's really where this path leads is in systems dialed in with state-based scientific-based management. When we start talking values, that is a value statement. That's a statement of my value is better than yours. Your religion sucks, but mine will get you to the promised land. You, your observation, you know, your your principles of how you interact and your relationship with this valuable thing is wrong. My relationship with it is correct. And if you don't believe me, I'm going to go to my governor. And we're going to stack the deck here. That's that's really the nutshell. None of they they are not making a case that they've somehow solved the riddle that we all have to reconcile when we walk up to that white-tailed deer or that bird. We have to reconcile that difficult emotion that this thing died so I can eat. That I don't care who you are. That's a difficult emotion, and I understand why people want to pay someone else to take them out of that cycle. Okay, it's painful. It's it's a struggle, but that does not change the equation. It does not create a value system that somehow is predicated on I'll go pay somebody to not have to deal with it. So my values are higher than those people who say I want to have the honesty. I want to have the blood on my fingers. So when you have that, and you could you could take what's going on in the hunting space to so many parts of our society or other societies or historical uh, things we can look to, where one side is taking a value statement and using the political process to overlay that value on top of everybody else. And the hell with you guys. You're just going to have to deal with it because we won 50.1% of the vote and our governor likes us and he wants to get, she he or she wants to get reelected. I, I hate to make it that simple uh, because it's more complex than that. But let's face it, what we are seeing in Washington and Colorado and probably going to be New Mexico and some of these other states we talked about is becoming heavily urbanized. This is what is going to unfold. And some would say, well, I don't like politics. I don't How, how are we going to combat that? 
Well, part of that is you're going to combat it by making an affirmative statement of the value that you provide. Back to your point. We need to talk about our abundance story. We need to quit being so sensitive. (laughs) You know, Uh, anytime hunters get picked on, you know, the old term, you know, a couple of years ago, everyone wanted to call someone a snowflake. Sometimes I look at the hunting committee, I'm like, we're the biggest bunch of snowflakes I've ever seen in my life. You know, we're just out there looking for some reason to be offended and aggrieved (laughs) when we've got such a compelling story to tell. If we went and told that story in, in, in the way that it really is and what value we've provided as, as not just as beneficiaries, but as stakeholders, we went to the public and said, here's what we have done. The other side, and I say other side because they're so far over there, it's, you know, there, there, there could be this, there's just people in the middle who really it's not easy to say you're this side or that side, but the people we're talking about who are grabbing the levers here, Mm -hmm. I am comfortable saying that is a side that's, that's a different mindset than even mainstream America, but they're trying to say mainstream America agrees with our values. I'm saying mainstream America agrees with our values and what we've done and what we can do and the models we've put in place, but we just, get our feelings hurt and we want to run over there and blame everything on, you know, something else. I think we have an even deeper issue to resolve. Um, yeah. yeah, we get aggrieved and we get hurt, but we also, we portray what we do as one of two things, it's gross exaggeration or generalization, but we, we portray it as either such a personal intrinsic thing that there's no way you could understand it. Mm-hmm. Or as such a singular, selfish uh, expression of independence and autonomy that there's no way we want you to understand it because we don't want to share it. Right. And I think those are two really dangerous sort of personality traits that I see in our community. I, I think you mentioned how we reconcile um, the taking of a life. And yeah, it is. It's going to be different from everybody, for everybody. But what we've really done when we walk up to that deer and celebrate and grieve and all of the spectrum of emotions that we go through is by taking that deer or bird, we've actually created life for Mm -hmm. more deer and more birds. And I think we need to tell that story much more broadly and much more relatably to the rest of America. We've also done something that I think is kind of old-fashioned, and we've we've just exercised an American folk art. We have used our woodsman <laughs> skills. We've used our ability to read landscapes and to move in a nat in a in a in a natural world that has not always been friendly to us with some success. We've used a gun or a bow. All of these things that the history of America was built on. And I think we need to talk about a lot more about that, that this is as old-fashioned as America is. And lastly, we need to share what we do and our gear and our places and our experiences with more people because we are a bunch of selfish SOBs when you get right down to it. <laughs> yeah. And I don't, think that's, I don't think that's serving us in this new world. It, it, it is. It, it might serve me as an individual to run everyone else off the trailhead. But in the long run, 
it is it, it is a complete disservice to perpetuating the generational legacy that our activity has had and some would say well how far back does that go well it goes back to the first time someone put a spear inside a you know a mastodon or something <laughs> you know <laughs> first time someone figured out how to throw a rock at a at a dodo bird you know that's how far back it goes and it's been a generational transfer of knowledge of culture of tradition but of a relationship that we have with the other living parts of this planet. And yeah, it's hard to think of it in that context today because we're so modernized. Technology is here. Markets have created such efficiencies that can extract us from all of that. And so it's easy to forget about it, but it's a compelling story. And it's not a story. It's a compelling history yeah. is really what it is. And it's a compelling statement of what we can provide as value to this trust, this public trust, this wildlife trust going forward. We provide the funding. We provide leadership. We provide habitat. We provide advocacy. We provide all these things. But if we start finding excuses not to do those things that are affirmative statements of the value that a trustee must consider. If we want to bail out or we're too busy or we can't afford that, we, you know, we can afford a 12 pack of beer every night, but we can't afford a $2 license increase. We are driving ourselves away from a valuable stakeholder position. And Wherever there's a vacuum or a void, something else fills that. So if we're going to create that vacuum of leadership, of funding, of everything else that historically has got us to where we are today, something else is going to fill that void. And we may not like it, but that's just the way it's going to be. History has proven that. Time and go show me where a void wasn't filled by a different different mindset, a different ideology, a different way of thinking. So if we want to surrender that through our whether it's our inaction, through our selfishness, through our lack of opening our eyes to what's going on, we're gonna get moved aside. Or we're just gonna eventually erode and, and dissipate, and that's gonna get filled by the other folks right now who are grabbing a hold of the levers and trying to direct this somewhere else. And it, I, I think it's worth giving an example in case people are wondering what's going oh, We keep referring to this. The state of Washington, their governor has appointed a majority of commissioners that do not believe that hunting has any relevance to wildlife management. And they've now formulated and put forth a plan that completely de-emphasizes hunting as a management tool. That's right. In a state of Washington, which I always thought of folks in Washington as fanatic outdoor people. I think, I think some of these new commissioners would consider themselves fanatic outdoor people. Mm-hmm. But I'm with you. I always considered, and I lived in outside of Seattle for a few years and kind of saw this firsthand. Um, not only the demographic change of every piece of level ground had a house on it, um, but also 
there was not quality public hunting. There was not really quality experience. You had to, you had to actually go to what I would say where the real people are in Washington, <laughs> which is the Eastern part of the state where I found a lot of people who I recognized from Montana, mm-hmm. you know, maybe had different license plates, but they were folks who understood the value and the purpose of hunting. Yeah. I think your example is really good. And I want to dwell a little bit on Colorado in a second and kind of what this new bunch of uh, commissioners uh, are representing in terms of not only constituencies, but also thoughts and, and, and perspectives. We're going to have a Washington, a former Washington commissioner as a guest on, on one of these episodes. And I think it'll be fascinating yep. to get some perspectives from her about what she went through and what she sees as the direction. Mm-hmm. I want to dwell on one thing. Um, you mentioned the North American model and some of the, those so seven pillars, those seven principles. Yep. One of them, um, and it, in some ways they're co-equal, so it's hard to tease one of them out as being more or less important, but is the idea that science is the basis for wildlife management. Yep. And, and I think that's something that our community can really hang its hat on. I think we, almost all of our conservation successes have been because we applied a scientific method and a uh, way of observing the cause and the effect of decisions to, to, uh, to replicate them. What I think is the great Achilles heel of this mutualistic uh, wildlife management regime. And I'm very, very curious to see how it plays out in Washington with a de-emphasis of hunting is, right. what's the alternative? What is right. the alternative to scientifically managed wildlife conservation? If you ask them, and we should probably get Kevin Bixby, who's the head of Wildlife for All on this at some point to have him describe it, mm-hmm. because I'll do a really piss poor job of uh, articulating what it is, but I'll try. And that is one of the reasons that they celebrate large carnivores to such a degree is they feel like that is the, the, the tip of this pyramid of what they call this trophic cascade, where yeah. if you allow predators to flourish, they can then manage the ungulates. A managed ungulate population can manage the habitat in, in scale with its abundance and on down to the rodents and the butterflies. Mm-hmm. Um, and I suppose if I can really cross my eyes and kind of imagine that fantastic thinking, that might work if there weren't interstates and train tracks and cities <laughs> yeah. and farms and, and all of the human influence on the natural world. Yeah. But I'm not a fantastic thinker or a, a magical realist. And one of the things I love about our community is I'm surrounded by people who are pretty practical. And I just don't see the practical application of what they're peddling in terms of this non-hunter-based management. It's, I think that gets to kind of the crux of it is they don't have the vision of that can be supported sustainably and pass the laugh out loud test. Right. By that, I mean, when they put their vision out there, any scientist who understands the relationship of habitat, you know, predator prey, even without humans as a predator, that scientist is going to laugh out loud at 
what gets presented as what is this alternative? And I think we we need to ask that question. I mean, you know, we, we're kind of afraid to even engage in the conversation for a couple of reasons. One, it seems like a big political snowball is going to roll us over. Two, if you engage on that side, you get so much criticism from your own community. Oh, you're just caving into those people. You're giving them a platform. You're blah blah blah. Whatever. But what is the alternative? I, I love that question. I'm glad that you 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 asked it that way. Tell me what what's it going to look like? Are we all going to jump in our vessels and we're going to go back to the whatever the fatherland was or the motherland, and we're going to erase our footprint off this continent and leave it back to the indigenous people who lived with, I mean, the indigenous folks, there's a lot to learn from that. They lived in a harmonious manner, a sustainable manner for millennia. But that does not mean they weren't influencing these relationships. They were altering habitat. Anyone who wants to doubt that needs to go and read Dan Flores' book. The, what is it? Our New World, I think is what? Wild New World. Wild New World. It does an amazing job of laying out how man has been on these landscapes with wild things since time began, has been influencing them, has managed them, whether they want to think that or not. Sometimes those, those big, <laughs> those, those species manage the, the, the human part of it at some times. But to think that somehow we're going to, again, change another equation that man is part of this, as it has been since, you know, however far back someone wants to say history goes, man has been part of this. The human, the homo sapien has been a part of this. And to imply that somehow we're now just going to remove them, but we're going to keep demanding energy. We're going to keep demanding food off these landscapes. We're going to keep demanding resources. And but but the 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 elk and the deer and the wolves and the lions and the and the butterflies and the fish are they're going to be just fine. Come on, that that is going to make just about anybody laugh out loud. And I think the risk of it is we could undo a century and, and more of yep. not only wildlife protection, wildlife restoration, and, and, uh, and this abundance that I'm talking about that I think we need to celebrate. We could actually undo all of that really quickly. Yeah. The, all right, I'm going to go out on an edge a little bit. Uh-oh, you're going to lead me down a really dangerous I hope piece not, of thin because ice. Because here's, I, you know, I'm a pretty good guide. I've, I'm really committed to the safety of my, you know, companions. So I'll try, I'll try, <laughs> I'm going to try to make it gentle, but there's really, it's a, it's pretty problematic. Uh, hmm. And that is when I really look at uh, some of the wording and really some of the kind of like eye-opening perspectives of these groups. And I'm going to read you something here in just a second. Oh. We go back to that religiosity that you talked about. And this is much bigger than mechanics yep. of wildlife management. Yep. It goes to what we're seeing, you know, this, this wokeism. I, you know, and again, mm -hmm. this is where I, I think this is where I'm, the ice is getting thinner. Yep. Um, 
because I am somebody who believes in, I'm a live, live and let live person. I, yeah. if somebody wants to live their life, I'm all for it. Knock yourself out. Yep. But what I see is there are a bunch of kind of words and perspectives that are coloring this conversation of current management is based on colonial uh, entitlement. So as we as, as white men have so cooked the system to our benefit that we've been excluding other people, which I don't believe for a minute. I don't, everything that I've been trying to do is bring more and different people into our world. Yep. Um, but that, that is really getting at the basis of a lot of that. And here's what I'd like to read. This is from my friend, Kevin Bixby's, uh, wildlife for all website. The fundamental problem is that state wildlife management is stuck in the past, focused more on satisfying hunters and anglers and selling licenses than addressing the extinction crisis. It is rooted in a worldview in which wild animals are seen as soulless resources without intrinsic or ecological values, whose highest purpose is to serve human needs and whims. It is out of touch with changing public attitudes and modern ecological science. And the reason I, re I read that is I think that's important for us to understand. That is a very deep, deeply mm -hmm. seated perspective and worldview yep. that yep. I don't think that we can just brush off. I don't think that we can say, oh, they're just out of touch. This is an expression of a really well-considered and deeply thought out way of engaging with the world. Yep. Um, and so when we say, oh, we're just, we're, they're going to go away or we're just one governor away from changing things. I think that denies a little bit of that bigger, bigger tectonic plate movement of urbanization, as you talked about, mm -hmm. the desensitizing of, the, of, of humans from the natural world. Um, and also from the idea that is probably colonial and it is probably uh christian but that we mm -hmm. are stewards of the world mm -hmm. and i think that's i am not going to back away from that that's how i believe and i don't the ice might be thin under my feet but i think we have an obligation to the future and to our fellow humans and to our fellow residents of this planet whether they're finned or furred or fanged and i will go to my grave believing that no, I'm I'm with you. I I think when you sit in the role of what humans do in this entire system, to imply you don't have any stewardship responsibility when there's eight billion of us stomping around the planet, that, that, that that's folly. Yeah, someone's got to. Someone has to be the steward. Someone has to be responsible and take responsibility for the funding for the you know if, if we just wanted this to be a tragedy of the commons it, it could quickly be that but we haven't we've imposed rules on ourselves we've said no this is how we're going to do it now you when you read that statement that is about as value-filled statement as i've heard in a long time and one thing, if you uh, study communications, uh, effective communications, a lot of times value statements are a whole lot more effective than scientific or logical statements. And they know that. So 
you've heard me use this term before and now you think you're on thin ice Andrew. i'm about ready to just walk off <laughs> where the ice ends am i I've coming with doing, you i i you can you can just stand there and throw me a life vest or you can jump in or you can just walk back to shore i i'll give you whatever option but with urbanization has come what i call urban progressive privilege People are going to be like, Newberg, what in the hell is that? And I, I'm the first to admit that I was, and people have heard me say it on this podcast many times. I was born a white male in America. That gave me the greatest head start I could ever, ever get. I, I'm, I'm not going to argue that. I'm not going to question that. I can't do anything about it, but I can do the things that you talk about of how do we just get more people, but you know, to, to be in the, in the same game and, and not treated as a, an exclusionary thing. So the reason I give that preface is as quick as I say urban progressive privilege, they're going to say, oh, look at you, Mr. White Male, you're full of privilege. Okay, I, I admit, you know, I've had the head start. But let's put that aside. That doesn't change what I'm about to talk about. If you are one of these people who are professing a lot of this stuff, that is more religious than it is scientific or logical. Everything is hunky-dory as long as you get cheap energy. Your organic food is, you know, down there at, at, at your local little market. As long as you get up in the morning and the electricity turns on so all these precious metals can fire up your computer and your cell phones and you can jet set back and forth across the country at a low cost. You can go to your fourth house in Aspen and you can turn on the air conditioner because it got too hot at this elevator. Boy, you can do all those things because you are at a point of privilege. You don't have to concern yourself with how the human interaction of landscapes really happens. You don't have to concern yourself with the fact that you turn on your thermostat because you got cold and there's some poor herd of pronghorn out there in Wyoming that are paying the price so you can have that cheap natural gas delivered to you. And in the process, you ignore all the people who are out there in the hinterlands who have these relationships, these day-to-day -day observations that when all you urban progressive privileged people turn on your air conditioner, the guy in Wyoming who works in the oil and gas fields to satisfy your need, he sees what's that doing to the pronghorn and the sage grouse. But you come from such a point of privilege, you can't even see that. And as a result, you develop your value system as being superior to the guy who's out in the Wyoming oil and gas field or the logger in northern Minnesota or the farmer in eastern Montana. The one providing you all of these things that allow you to sit in your holy chair and make a value proposition, a value statement like you just read to me off that website. That comes from a point of privilege beyond what I could have. My mind can't go there because I live this daily life where I have to reconcile my impacts to the other wild things of the planet. But if I was urbanized and I was multi-generations removed from that, I could buy into the fiction that if, if we just quit doing what those people do that we don't like, the whole world would be solved. That somehow our food would just show up here. 
that our energy would have no impact to the rest of the planet, to these these other earthly beings. They, you know, we, I, I live in Seattle. I want that cheap energy. It's a damn good thing that I got cheap electricity here. Never mind that we damn the Columbia River and we ruined an entire ecosystem in the process. Okay? The, 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 this mindset, this overlaying of those values on top of the rest of the world, the rest of this country, or the rest of your state citizens who are beneficiaries, that is an absolute point of privilege that pisses me off. Well, you're a pretty good I'm, swimmer I, if you went through the ice. Because I, I, am, I, I am now, I'm so far away from the ice, I'm going <laughs> to drown, Andrew. <laughs> well, I don't think so because your that pulpit is going to rise you. It's a it's a it's a rock that you can grab. I, okay. I, I, what I what I want to pick out from that is actually what I I'm not I'm honestly not that worried. Uh, a little worried, but not that worried about the mutualists. Yeah, I, I am, either. I am, because I think they're the 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 co-equal of soul, whatever wildlife rights, and is is bothersome to me. But I'm not that worried, and here's why: they share so many commonalities with us. They love to be outside. They understand, maybe they get it wrong, but they understand the value of intact habitat and wild places and wild landscapes. And they will fight and work to, to preserve. Yeah. In a lot of cases, it is a preservation mentality. But, but I'm okay with that because I think it benefits everybody. What terrifies me about what you said, and this is uh, when we get Tony Wasley on, I'm going to actually get a steal a phrase from him. And I'd like him to mm -hmm. expand on it more than I can. But he's identified the real problem or what he calls distanced, distanced wildlife value orientations. And that's exactly what you're talking about, about mm -hmm. uh, right. a, a, a privileged progressive who's insulating themselves from all of these natural processes and worlds. Yep. That terrifies me because they are out of touch with not only these natural systems, but also the human systems that regulate those natural systems, right? Yep. They are the, I don't care as <laughs> long as I'm comfortable. Yep. I, I, I'm not really a part of the world. Yep. Don't. And, and that I see, even in little old Glasgow, Montana, I see that mentality gaining traction and a larger proportion of the community every year. And I yep. look at my kids' generation and what extrapolating beyond them, we are creating a system and, a, and worlds where comfort and predictability are the, the sort of religious goals. People mm -hmm. will do anything to ensure that that is, is how yeah. their lives are spent. Yeah. And our little talk about sustainability of wildlife resources or clean air and clean water are pretty distant from them. They just don't really care that much about it. And so this is where I'm actually pretty hopeful. Mm -hmm. We actually have a lot in common with folks who are building these bulwarks of wildlife conservation because they do care right. about the natural world. I think the devil is in the details and they are very devilish, but yeah. I, I, think we, I think we can build on something of shared values there. No, I, I, that's where I'm never rejecting the opportunity to work or collaborate or listen to anybody who has that shared common 
appreciation and concern for the wild things and and how how do we make that better for them because my life without wild things would be a damn boring life and uh so i i appreciate that part of it where i get concerned is we can see most any if you want to call it movement in our country can be hijacked by fringe elements and i don't care what side of the equation you're talking about it can and that's where government and governance can be used as a tool for a small minority to say here's my value system the rest of you are going to live by it because i control access to the people who can force you to do that and that is so counter to what the American ideology is about. It's counter to what mainstream America thinks, whether they haunt or don't haunt that, you know, whatever 60, 70 percent in the middle, 80 percent that agrees with use of, of animals for food. They also, that, that group who appreciates or, or, you know, maybe the term is tolerates, the use of wild things for food. They, they're on our side when it comes to not wanting some minor element to say, this is my value system. This is the way I see the world. And damn it, you're going to see the world this way. And if you don't, my governor and his buddies, we're going to make you see the world that way. And that's where we got to start pointing this out. That this is really an effort by a small portion of Americans to take their value system and tell the rest of Americans, here's how you're, this is how it's going to be going forward because our governor, he or she will appoint enough commissioners. We'll, we'll show you where the bear shits in the woods. I think it's important that we talk a little bit about the rules of the game. What commissions do, yeah, you would know. How commission I would know how commissioners are selected and some energy around changing that. And I think we're in the early days of that energy. I think right now we're still trying to understand how commissions could actually be different than the way we've imagined them for their since they were uh, created. Usually either uh concurrent with those wildlife management agencies or, you know, within some sort of like a, 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 a governance or a constitutional uh, structure. So, you know, commissioners are really, they, they, they have, they should by statute and by sort of practice have a fairly limited scope of things. They're, they're basically managing an agency and and they a lot of times they don't even have budget budgetary authority that's coming from right. the legislature um but i think this is some of the energy in this movement is commissioners who are saying well maybe we just haven't thought large enough commissioners can be do a lot more than just set bag limits and seasons mm-hmm. to going to what you described in washington state which is an entirely different paradigm of wildlife management and and even the responsibility of the agency toward the, the wildlife that it manages. But I am hopeful that across most of the country, certainly the West, commissioners' roles are fairly narrow. Mm-hmm. What I think we need to look for in terms of our community are, look at your state, 
do a little research. What does the Constitution or the legislature give in terms of authority to your commission? Are they regionally representative? Are they interest group representative? Because I think those are, like once we start to look at the actual tools, we open the hood and fiddle around with the timing belt, um, <laughs> we, we can kind of think about ways to, you know, I can put it in war terms, but kind of protect and have a defensive strategy so that we don't get steamrolled. Mm-hmm. Um, in Montana, you know, we changed actually while I was coming off the commission from five regionally selected commissioners, one of whom had to be a representative of the livestock or it was animal husbandry right. uh, community. Um, to now we've got seven commissioners to reflect yep. the seven different uh, regions of the state. Other ones have much more uh, authority in terms of like, they've got to come from the livestock industry. Right. Well, as a community, I think we need to be kind of aware of who is actually doing that representation. And I would just throw out to your listeners, do you know who your wildlife commissioner is? <laughs> yeah. And how often, and if you do, how often do you engage with them? Yeah. That, that's a good point. And how, do you know how that person got appointed? Do you know what qualifications they have for appointment other than just, hey, my brother Jack wrote a bunch of checks to the governor, and so Jack's sibling gets put on the commission. You know, there's there's a lot of stuff that is – this is where we start going from all this science and the places where we're comfortable to places where – as a general rule, I'd say most hunters and anglers are uncomfortable once you start getting into this governance kind of stuff. But that's where a big part of this path is going to be determined. That's right. How, how do we engage in this governance? What do we do to make sure it's not being abused? What Does it need reform in some places? What are the accountability aspects? So... You know, if you look at Colorado, right, governor gets elected and uh, the first gentleman, is that what you say? That's that's, that's, that's not first first lady, first gentleman. First gentleman. It's the husband of the governor. Yeah. Has this really strong view, well, well stated, well known about an animal rights perspective. So should an unelected person, in this case, the governor's husband, be allowed to influence a system of governance in something so important to Coloradans in the way that they have with these three recent commissioner appointments? And now the department holding meetings on mutualism and the future of wildlife. It's... The, the, it's, this isn't a little snowball just getting rolling down the hill in Colorado. This is already a great big snowball that's well down the slope in Colorado. So how do we correct situations where a governor's husband can have this much influence? That governor's husband was not on the ballot. That's right. Was not elected. 
how, how do, where are the checks and balances to this? And I think in the past, one of the things we've always relied upon is, okay, we're, we're going to have people who look at it in a certain way, and this would never be a political plum. This, this you know, to the victor go the spoils. Wildlife's wildlife. All citizens want this managed for, you know, more abundance and greater health and vitality. And now, as politics and political processes and just what the rules of engagement are in the world of politics. It's like, well, you know, one of the spoils to this, Victor, is we, we don't care that Colorado hosts more non-resident elk hunting than all other Western states combined. Yeah, we're not sure we really agree with that. We don't care that a huge portion of the West Slope economy is based on this wildlife experience. Eh, too bad with that. We won the election. The husband is going to say over coffee or whatever, that's what I want to do, and that's what ends up happening. And I know some people in Colorado are going to be like, Newberg, you just shut up. You don't know what's happening. Okay. I know enough people in Colorado who are on the inside who know what's happening and have seen what's happening. So I just use that as an example that... We've relied on the historical goodwill approach, if you want to call it that, that no one would no one would ever take something as important as wildlife and the management of wildlife and make it a political football. Well, they have in Colorado, and I could make the case that we did the same thing in Montana. Well, I'm a living embodiment of that. <laughs> you are. And I'm sure as I'm saying that, Andrew's like, well. <laughs> Let me tell you a story. Yeah. <laughs> so point of that being is how, how correct is it, is it for me to criticize Colorado using their governor and other appointment process to guide to a different direction. When my home state of Montana, when the governor got elected, he'd like, we're going to clear the deck here. Yep. I don't care how good, how qualified, who you are. I'm putting my pals in here. Okay. I, that, that, that's, that's the danger you run. And I, I, yes. I'm, I, I guess that's the warning I want the audience to hear is just because we use it to our benefit at some times doesn't make it right. The other side can use it to our detriment. That's exactly And the right. more we we have standards and kind of protocols, governance law, whatever, the better off the wildlife resource, the corpus of the public trust is going to benefit by not letting any of us, whether it's our side or the other side, be able to grab a hold of it and do what has been happening. So we've talked a lot about it, and you have have weighed in majestically, I might add, on the stakeholder and the beneficiary side. What we're talking about right here is the trustee side. Exactly. And Randy, as a trustee, could you ever imagine that you are going to manage, you're going to be the trustee of a corpus, but yep. you've got a gambling problem. Mm -hmm. And you've got a lot of other people's resources and money at your disposal, well, right. you know what? I bet you could quadruple the value of that just by playing that right, just, just trust in your gut. Yep. You know what? You might be the world's greatest trustee. 
how long would that fly? And I use that example because what we've allowed by not keeping our eye on the governance side of the trustee relationship to the trust Mm -hmm. is we've allowed people who are not at all committed to the resource or to the trust, but they're committed to that political appointment. Exactly. So the governor has gotten a lot of money, let's say, from and and influence from the energy sector. So Mm -hmm. by golly, I'm going to appoint somebody from that community on the Wildlife Commission because it's a plum job and people, it's got a a lot of influence and and a a lot of... um, of impact. Yep. Well, when at the end of the day, what happens to that Pinedale anticline? Mm-hmm. Are you are you going to make decisions based on your trust responsibility or on your political affiliation and appointment? Yep. And that's what I worry about so greatly when it comes to our exposure in this world. And you. So you said it very well. It can be used either way, depending mm-hmm. on the political winds. There's been a lot of energy to take the political influence out of these positions. And I don't, I, I again, I remember I said I'm not a magical thinker. I don't imagine <laughs> that that will ever, will ever get politics out of these. But right. um, there has been a lot of talk and and discussion around what actually makes a good wildlife trustee, a wildlife right. resource trustee. And you and I can see them when we see them or know of them when we see them, people who are curious about the world, who are engaged in their communities, and who have the balls to make unpopular decisions based on right. the health of the trust. Yep. And honestly, with those three things right there, and who are receptive to other perspectives than their own, maybe there's mm-hmm. four. I would get behind that person almost no matter what, because I would trust their rudder. It's not going to yeah. be swayed off course by prevailing political winds. They know what's best for the resource. And I think those are the people we need to be looking for and looking yeah, to. That, and when we talk about governance, that is so important. One, who the trustees are, but how they get selected. Once they are selected, what's their understanding of their roles? Because Nothing makes a trustee get off the hook any easier than to throw something out there to let the beneficiaries and stakeholders fight with each other. It's the shiny object. It's the, well, that'll preoccupy them while I do whatever it is that I have as my motivation. And I don't care. Fiduciary law is what, in fiduciary principles, is what governs trustee-beneficiary relationships. It goes back to the Romans. I mean, it goes back so far and it's evolved in common law and it came to the U.S. when we settled and brought a lot of those laws with us. And there's some very basic things. A trustee must operate in full faith, independence and transparency to the benefit of the beneficiaries. It's that simple. No self-dealing, no influence by outside interests, beholden to the beneficiaries and the trust corpus in perpetuity. It, it's that, it, it, but we make it more complicated than that by saying, well, three of them have to come from this background and two of them have to come from that background. As quick as you say that, you now are putting them there not to be an independent trustee, but to be a voice that represents that background. 
So we got a lot of looking to do about how this can be changed. And since it's at the core of the public trust doctrine, and many would say the public trust doctrine is at the core of the North American model, what I'm talking about is some changes to the North American model, or at least ways of protecting the integrity of what we, we hope to accomplish. Uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm really getting off the rails here, Andrews. I must have had a double shot of... <laughs> I, I get this coffee from Elkhorn Coffee Roasters, and we, we do this big Hank blend, and it's high octane. I think I had a double shot this morning, so... Well, I think what it did is it gave you uh, maybe a little edge, but I think I want to say it gave you some clairvoyance too. I think that yeah. is the thing with this is I, I this is a day that the reason our ice is thin, mm-hmm. though I don't think it's as thin as as we imagine it. But the reason that we imagine it is is these are really important, complicated but problematic topics. Yeah. This is not easy, but no. it's exactly why we sort of committed to each other that it was important to talk about it because yeah. I think you, you said it in a much more singular, like impactful way. This is the wildlife topic of our time. And if we don't yeah. get this right, we don't get everything that follows right. Yeah. It's the, the rest is a moot discussion. We, if we don't get this right and we fall asleep at the wheel, we can argue about lighted knocks and, you know, should the bag limit be three grouse or four grouse? We, the stuff that people seem to want to get so fired up about that, those type of discussions will become irrelevant really quickly. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, I use the analogy that our house is burning down and we're out there plucking the dandelions out mm-hmm. of the, out of the flower bed out by the dry end of the driveway while our house burns down. And it, that's how important this issue is. There are groups with a different value system who have, in terms of demographics and geopolitical consolidation of populations, have access to the mechanisms of change. And they are willing to use them to say, here's my value. I'm going to make that the lens of the world, and you're going to have to live by my values. But they also are arming that momentum with two or three things I think we are dimly aware of and we talk about, but we don't see how it could be weaponized. We're losing hunters. Yep. And we are losing public acceptance of hunting. And yep. both of those things are feeding right into their narrative that hunting is irrelevant, it is cruel, it's old-fashioned, and it's colonial. Boy, I look around my world, I don't see any of that. I don't either. And that's the old saying, you know, if you don't tell your story, someone's going to tell it for you, and you're not going to like how they tell that story. And that's where I think it's imperative upon us in this you know, if they want to label us traditionalists, whatever, I, I don't care what label someone wants to hang on me. The hunters, the anglers, the trappers, the people who have this relationship with wild places and wild things, the sustainability of use and stewardship and put back into it. For me, we got to tell that story because right now they're telling it for us in these value statements, in their political messaging, in their social messaging. And are we going to just stand there and be defensive? 
Well, we have to defend our turf at times, but we also need to be affirmative. If we really feel that we have a story to tell that's worthwhile and compelling to the American public, we better get telling that story because we've been doing a pretty shitty job of it. Well, thanks for helping tell this story. And I think if I have a hope for this, it's going to get a little dark on our journey. I think mm-hmm. we kind of framed it that way. I hope people's, we've gotten people's attention. I think we're going to have yeah. some guests that are going to kind of fill out from personal experience and, and, and thoughtfulness, kind of what that world can look like. Yep. And if we do our job right, I think we come back. I don't think it's a hopeless thing. I think there's a lot mm-hmm. that we can do, and there's a lot. I, I, hope, I hope we're being honest messengers mm-hmm. who can get people to wake up and get people to say, okay, not on my watch. Let's get involved. And yeah. that my great hope is that we're going to be able to actually have it all. Yeah. And that's the purpose. I think you and I both are optimists in this. Uh, Andrew, we, we believe in, in all the good things that can be done. And hopefully when we're wrapped up after episode four, people agree with that and they take the actions in their daily lives and in their activities, they're they help move that ball forward. Well, thanks. uh, Thanks for being a fellow writer. Yeah. Well, thank you, Andrew. I know that I've probably kept you longer than I was supposed to, and I don't want to keep the, the grasshoppers up on the high line of Montana from uh, irritating Andrew. So I better let you go out there and harvest or bale hay or do something. So I was, uh, I got a chance to go tour a, uh, a, a sporting dog uh, food company last month, and they had a prototype. I looked up on the shelf, kind of like looking ahead. Remember, I said if I if I blur my eyes a little bit, I can see the future way better. It mm-hmm. was it was cricket formulation. So I'm 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 the leading edge of the future here. I'm gonna see if I can <laughs> if I can bail up some grasshoppers. Because I'll tell you what, my lab Nelly, she's about half her body weight right now is grasshoppers. So I know it does a good uh, thing. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, folks, thanks for listening, Andrew. Thank you so much. I look forward to our next three episodes on this topic. I. I know we're going to take some risks in in exploring it the way we are, but I think you and I feel that it's worth worthwhile. And when we're all done, uh, hopefully the audience feels the same way. Well, thanks for having me, Randy. It's important. Thank you. When the sun came-